Well, sadly, last week I was ill, and I was not able to come here and give you a brief report of the youth winter retreat that Lisa and I were on previously. I just need to tell you that we have some of the most awesome youth leaders and students in our youth ministry that I've ever encountered. They are truly remarkable. They are wonderful. And you're going to get a chance to to see a little bit more of them in the days ahead as they are looking for ways right now to serve the church. And one of the ways they want to serve the church is they're going to provide a parents' night out next Saturday evening uh, for anybody that would like to leave their kids for free from 5 to 8 to be able to go out and maybe have a date or get some shopping done or maybe even just take a nap. Uh, If that is something that you might be interested in, you can sign up online. Uh, Now that we have Logan to be able to help us as our uh, pastoral intern, uh, he can just work magic on the keyboard. And uh, with that, as soon as the email went out offering this, within three minutes, Caitlin Robertson had signed up her kids already. You would have thought we had Taylor Swift tickets available at that moment. And then immediately after that, it was like, bing, 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 bing. More and more parents were signing up. But this is free. We'll feed your kids. Uh, We'll want to watch after them, help them to have a great time uh, for those three hours. Uh, But you must pick them back up afterwards. All right? We insist on that. All right? But our youth want to be able to serve you in that way. And then also, just want to let you know, in the youth ministry department, uh, we're excited because we believe God has brought the right man to be our next youth minister here at Providence. Uh, This evening, from 5 to 6, I just want to remind our youth leaders and our parents of youth to come out to the church at the Fellowship Hall and meet Joel Blevins, who interviewed with our elders and with our personnel team this past Tuesday night with flying colors. Joel comes to us from another sister church. He's been in uh, youth ministry for about seven years now. Uh, He is a wonderful young man. He and his wife, Lindsay, are going to be available to answer questions. And then in the week ahead, you're going to get a chance, church, as a body, to get to know Joel. And then after that, we will be voting on whether or not he should be our youth pastor at a special called meeting on March the 17th. You may say, well, why didn't you just have him be presented uh, at at March the 3rd at our our business meeting? Because we didn't think of it, if I was just to be honest with you, uh, to to be able to go with that. But a special called meeting on March the 17th to be able to to vote Joel uh, to be our student pastor. Um, Joel, we've known Joel and his family uh, ever since we used to live in Tennessee. He was a childhood playmate of Amelia's growing up, and he and his his wife, Lindsay, are dear, dear people, and you're going to fall in love with them as well. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you thanking you, seeing the marvelous ways in which you work in your body, the church. It is truly wonderful. It is special that, Lord, from the oldest to the youngest of us, that you have done your work in, that you have created a desire to serve, a desire to uh, carry one another's burdens, a desire, Lord, to emulate what it looks like to be unified under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we pray that as a church body, you will lead us through your word. As we sang earlier in the service, Holy Spirit, come, lead us and teach us in your truth, in your ways, so that we might emulate our Savior. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen.
Well, if you will, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. As we come back to this chapter, please allow me just to give you just a brief recap of what we've seen so far. This is a pivotal chapter in the book that will affect the rest of the story, and I bounced around chronologically between chapters 25 through 28 to enlarge our understanding of what is actually transpiring here. In way of review, I want to point out that we have two different brothers— two different parents, and two different types of inheritance. The two brothers are twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother who came out of the womb first, with Jacob the second clutching at his heel. And Rebekah, their mother, received a prophecy from Yahweh while she was pregnant that she would have two sons who would strive against one another and that one day the older would serve the younger. And despite being twins, the boys take on two distinct personalities. Esau is a hunter. He loves to live in the wilderness. And when you see the words that he liked to dwell in the fields, we should not think fields as in crops or livestock, but rather Esau is an outdoors man. He didn't stay near his family encampment. We, we've seen that he's impetuous. He's tempetuous. He gives away his birthright for a bowl of soup. He could care less about the family farm. He marries multiple wives from the people of Canaan, even marrying a cousin from Ishmael out of spite towards his parents. And when he is cheated out of his blessing, he plots to murder his brother. Esau is portrayed as a wild and reckless man. Jacob, on the other hand, is a cultivator. He remains with the livestock and takes on management of the household. While Esau is out hunting, Jacob works to increase the herds. And these skills that he develops will be demonstrated later in the story with his uncle Laban. Now, I don't want to paint Jacob as a good guy. As we're about to see, he is not. While Esau might be wild and reckless, Jacob is cunning and calculating. I said earlier that I always thought of Esau being like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Well, I've always imagined Jacob as being like Jafar from Aladdin at this time in his life. From the outside to this point in the story, it is clear their relationship is divided and it is tense. There's not been any love or affection shown between these two brothers. But there is a love from two other relatives, their parents but not towards one another, but towards their individual sons. Back in chapter 25, verse 28, it was revealed that Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. In chapter 26, we learn that as a couple, Isaac and Rebekah had their own faults, but the Lord was with them just as he was with Isaac's father Abraham. But these parents had their favorites, Esau for Isaac, Jacob for Rebekah. Isaac probably liked to hear of Esau's exploits and hunting as he ate his game. Rebekah probably felt like she could count on Jacob to be nearby, dependable, and assist her with the household chores. But their love for their boys kept them from being a united family. They definitely were not of one mind with one another and would plot against each other. And that's going to be inevitable in our scene this morning. But before we delve into that, let me speak a word about the differences between blessing and birthright. Both are related to the inheritance of Isaac. In chapter 25, we saw Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
In fact, the last verse of the chapter tells us that Esau could have cared less about his birthright. The birthright related to the material possessions of the father. Each son was expected to get an equal portion of the inheritance, but the oldest son got a double portion. So in this case, Esau was expected to inherit two-thirds of his father's estate after he died. Jacob was to receive one-third. But Esau essentially gave away that extra third of what he was to inherit to his brother Jacob for some red bean soup. Related to the family inheritance for this particular family was the blessing. This blessing was first given to Abraham by God in chapter 12, that, that Abraham's seed would bless all the nations of the earth, that he would become the father of a multitude of nations, and whoever blessed Abraham would be blessed by the Lord, and whoever cursed him would be cursed by God. But more importantly, Yahweh promised Abraham that he would be his God and that Abraham would belong to him. Essentially, it was a, a blessing of property, of provision of people and of protection under Yahweh. That was an oath that God made when he made his covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15. Abraham and Sarah had one son, and naturally this blessing fell upon Isaac alone. But now Isaac has two sons, twins from the same mother. How should the blessing fall upon them? Equally? Or just one or the other? Or should it somehow be portioned out like the birthright? Well, Rebecca knew the answer as she had heard from Yahweh back in chapter 25, verse 23, that the older would serve the younger. Now, this blessing comes in the form of an oath that cannot be revoked. Once given, it is permanent. Later, we will see Jacob give a blessing to all of his sons in chapter 49 with the blessing of Abraham falling to Judah, not Reuben the oldest or the upstanding Joseph, as the reader might anticipate, but Judah, who was the fourth son. Usually, a blessing of this type would be a public affair so all would know the father's wishes. But we're about to see Isaac is choosing to do this privately without any witnesses. And that move alone gets him into trouble. So now let's look at our dysfunctional family here in chapter 27. The scene plays out in seven movements, and they are easily discerned by seven dialogues between the characters. Dialogue number one is verses one through four between Isaac to Esau. Four factors are important here. First, Isaac is 100 years old at this point, and he thinks he's going to die, but he's going to live an additional 80 years after this. Perhaps Isaac is a bit of a hypochondriac. <laughs> Ladies, y'all can identify, can't you? Second, Isaac is almost blind. He cannot tell anyone apart by sight alone. Third, Isaac in his death throes is asking Esau to catch him some fresh game. He thinks he is entitled to this as this might be his last supper. And he wants Esau to do what Esau does best, hunt and prepare delicious food such as I love. The word love in verse 4 is the same word used for the love of a woman. So Isaac may have been somewhat of a glutton here. He was a foodie. He loved fine fare. And I find it fascinating that as Isaac thinks he's about to die, what he wants is not his wife and his family around him, but he wants a meal. 
And fourth, Isaac is so convinced that he's going to die that over this meal, he wants to give Esau his blessing. Now remember, the blessing typically would be public, but Isaac is doing this hidden from everyone else. Might he be trying to thwart the prophecy that Yahweh gave Rebekah before the boys were born? Esau runs out to hunt, and he's probably taking his time to find the exact animal that he, his dad likes best. But unknown to these men, Rebekah has overheard the conversation. That is a problem, living in tents. There's not much privacy there. And dialogue number two begins when Rebekah speaks to Jacob, and she plots to deceive her husband Isaac. She reveals to Jacob what she has heard, and she instructs her son what to do. He is to bring her two young goats, and she's going to make the meal just the way that Isaac likes it. And she's going to have Jacob go into his father's tent disguised as Esau to receive the blessing. Now, to his credit, Jacob is fearful that he might be discovered, and he is afraid if that happens that his father will curse him. And that curse comes along with the curse of Yahweh. But Rebekah is so sure that this is the right thing to do that she agrees that if such a thing were to happen, then she's going to take the curse upon herself. So in verses 14 to 17, Jacob goes along with the ruse. They dress him up in Esau's garments, and they even drape him with goat skins on the places that Isaac might touch him. Man, Esau must have been one hairy dude if that was the case. I like the way you said it, Ryan, when you were reading it but I am a smooth man. That's, I like that. <clears throat> he takes food into his father's tent just as they planned it. And here dialogue number three occurs between Isaac and who he thinks is Esau. But Isaac suspects that he hears Jacob's voice. In fact, I noticed that you added that also in your reading when you added, uh, I think I hear Isaac, or here, uh, uh, Jacob, but it's... Esau's voice there, I hear, or Jacob's voice there. Uh, anyway, in verse 19, Jacob tells his first lie as he is Esau. He tells his first lie there. He even tells his father, sit up so he may bless him as he pretends to be Esau. And Isaac's surprised that his son caught his game so quickly. And note Jacob's words here. Look at this. Yahweh, your God, granted me success. Not only is this the second lie, it would be considered blasphemy to attribute this deception to Yahweh. And the words that he uses are also telling, your God, not our God. Jacob will not personalize Yahweh as his God until late in chapter 28. Isaac suspects something is fishy here, so he asks Jacob to come near so he can feel the skin of his son. And lo and behold, Rebekah's deception of goatskins and Esau's clothes work. Jacob not only feels like Esau, he smells like Esau. And now Isaac pronounces his blessing on who he thinks is Esau. And once he pronounces it, it is permanent. Note that he doesn't use Esau's name. He only uses the words, my son. This blessing is going to fall upon the person of Jacob alone. It has two parts. Isaac is going to pass along the blessing of increase or fertility and also the blessing of dominion. Verse 27, see the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Remember, Isaac thinks that Esau found game so quickly because Yahweh blessed him to do so. And here's the first blessing of fertility. 
May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. And here's the second blessing of dominion. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be any, everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, we might say that Jacob just stole Abraham's blessing. But remember the prophecy of chapter 25, verse 23. As the patriarch, Isaac just tried to reverse the circumstances where Jacob would have to submit to Esau. If he had not done this secretly, perhaps someone would have informed him of the deception. But as we have seen over and over again, despite the plans of men, what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. The deception here is done. And Jacob is out as quick as he can be, and we see the intensity of the drama as Esau's right on the heels of his brother to enter his father's tent with the wild game that he caught and cooked. And dialogue number four between Isaac and Esau occurs. Notice that Esau's first words are an expectation of the blessing from his father. There is no pronouncement of love here. Esau is motivated by one thing. He wants his dad's blessing. And at hearing his words, Isaac knows something bad has occurred. He doesn't know necessarily that the person was Jacob, but regardless, he knows the blessing cannot be revoked. And he affirms that in verse 33. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Now we see that though Esau could have cared less about his birthright, he definitely wanted the power of Yahweh's blessing. And this man's man cries greatly and bitterly. Another way of translating this in the Hebrew would be to say he was wailing. And Isaac confesses the truth of the matter in verse 35. Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau rages. Is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember, Jacob could also be translated as he cheats. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Well, this isn't entirely true. He didn't cheat Esau out of his birthright. That was his own doing, right? And with the prophecy of Rebekah in chapter 25, he wasn't really entitled to the blessing in the first place. But as most selfish people do, Esau sees it as an affront to himself. I am always amazed at how selfish people reinterpret past events in their lives and make it all about them being the victim. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? In verse 37, Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I've sustained him. Now look carefully at what was implied in the blessing. Isaac had planned to give Esau everything, all of it, not just two thirds of it, but all of it. But instead, it now belongs to Jacob. Esau doesn't even have an entitlement to his portion of the birthright. So he asked, what then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. There's not much left to give. Isaac can only give Esau something that's both inside and outside of Abraham's blessing. Inside that he may proper or prosper by his association with Abraham, but outside of the full blessing of the promised land. He can't receive that. 
Verse 39, then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Esau inherits the desert. He inherits the wilderness, the place that no one else wants. And next, Isaac grants blessing to Esau's warlike nature. He and his people will serve his brother Jacob, but eventually he will also turn against him. And by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This event occurs of when he breaks the yoke of his brother much later in 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to leave it to you to attend Randy Cox's Sunday school class to find out more about that because he's studying First and Second Kings right now. Dialogue number five is quick. It is revealed as Esau speaking to himself in verse 41 as he plots to murder his brother after the death of his father. But while we might consider Esau a big enough lug that he might utter this aloud to himself, it's probable that he revealed it to others in the camp to solicit their support. And Rebecca learns about it. And now she must plot to save her favored son. And dialogue number six is between Rebecca and Jacob. And she tells him to run to her family in Padan Aram and stay there until Esau's wrath subsides. Note that she has plans to get word to Jacob when it is safe to come home. But that will never happen. Jacob will not hear from his beloved mother ever again after his departure. But there's another reason that Rebekah sends Jacob to her family home. It's not just to protect him from Esau, but also to protect him from foreign women. Our seventh and final dialogue of the chapter is between Rebekah and Isaac, her husband. And there we learn of how miserable Esau's wives have made Isaac and Rebekah. If Jacob were to marry from the same clans, she would consider her life a failure. Now, Lord willing, next week we will see Isaac's instructions as he sends him to find a wife. He is unaware of Esau's desire to murder his brother. He doesn't realize this is for Jacob's safety as well, but we're going to have to save that for another sermon. But there are at least three applications that we need to take away from this. I want to address them briefly here, just for a moment. I want to touch on Isaac's role. I want to touch on Rebecca's role, and I also want to talk about what Yahweh is doing here. First, let's talk about Isaac. The main reason that his family is so dysfunctional is that there is a complete lack of spiritual leadership in the family. Now, before I launch into this, I want to be clear that even when parents provide spiritual leadership, children do not always choose to serve the Lord. That is between the child and the Lord. So I don't want to put any undue guilt upon a parent who has striven to provide a Christian home and their child rebels, that somehow you did something wrong. That is not my intent. If you have a rebellious child, I pray the Lord has them in a prodigal son situation that that they are learning to come to an end of themselves so they might return to sanity and find God. Even Billy Graham's son, Franklin, rebelled against him. So don't give up hope, parents. But this does not absolve Isaac from his lack of spiritual leadership. 
There does not to be, appear to be any instruction to Esau or Jacob regarding their father's relationship to Yahweh. They know there is a blessing, and they know that Isaac considers Yahweh to be his God. But beyond that, there's not much else. That's going to become clear from Esau's actions, and we're going to see it later in Genesis, that it will be Yahweh himself who will have to teach Jacob as to who he is. Isaac failed to lead his family spiritually. It's not that Isaac provided a a godly home and the boys rejected it. It would appear these boys didn't even have that option, and it made this family dysfunctional. Okay, let me tell you the primary way that this happens, men. Let me tell you the primary way that this happens in the home. Passivity. Do you hear me? Passivity. In my mind, that is Isaac's biggest problem. He is passive in regards to instructing his family rather than being active. I perceive this because even for myself, I have to fight this attitude all the time. I I don't like to have the uncomfortable conversations with my family members. I can be too tired to lead family devotions. I want to tap out when I feel the weight of my own sin and say, I'm not worthy to lead them right now. But guys, we are given the command to lead our families toward godliness. And I've been guilty of this, even thinking, well, God is sovereign and he will just take care of it. When I know he wants me to be proactive in the spiritual development of my family. Passivity might be the greatest sin in the Christian home, thinking our kids will somehow pick it up some other way. Now, you may ask, what does that look like? It doesn't mean you become a big game hunter and fisherman and teach your kids how to live off the land outdoors. It doesn't mean that you coach your son or daughters into being the best athletes on the planet. And it doesn't mean you oversee your child's academics so that they can get the best scholarships. Now, those things in and of themselves are not bad, but that is not spiritual instruction. It means your kids should see you studying God's Word. They should hear you talking about God. They should see and hear you praying. They should see you battling to be holy. They should see your desire to be with God's people at church. They should hear you singing hymns loudly, even if you're the most lousy singer in the entire congregation. They should see you treating your wife with dignity and respect. They should hear that you have a concern for lost people. But most of all, they should see you regularly confessing sin and depending upon Jesus when you do sin. Even when you don't feel worthy of doing the instruction, your family can at least see what you're doing about it. Gentlemen, we must slay the sin of passivity in our homes. We have to. And on the flip side, we need to talk about the role of Rebecca here. Rebecca is not passive. She is actively engaged to get her favored son the blessing. We might ask, well, was she right to use sinful means to acquire it? Well, throughout the story, there's no endorsement nor condemnation from Yahweh here. Rebecca actively plots against her husband. She deceives him intentionally, and she leads her favored son into the deception also. Now, we don't know how things might have worked out if Rebecca's actions had been righteous. We do know, we do know 
that Yahweh's will would have been done regardless, right? But when we consider the other Old Testament matriarchs, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca is the only one whose death and funeral are not recorded in the Scriptures. After sending off her son to safety in chapter 28, we hear nothing about her again. It will appear that Rachel is left by herself with her passive husband, distempered son, and his pagan wives who made her miserable. She will be deprived of the presence of her favored son for the rest of her life. And when we read Romans chapter 9, like we did at the beginning of the service, while Rachel played her game, we see that it was God's sovereign choice all along. The choice of the younger over the older was to show us that it's not just a blood relation that attaches one to the people of God, but it is Yahweh himself. Those whom the Lord chooses will embrace him by faith. Those whom he has chosen do so based upon God's mercy, not upon their performance. So despite Rebecca's scheming, God still triumphs in the story. What he intends to happen, happens regardless of Rebecca's and Jacob's deception. His voice is silent throughout this episode, but like we've seen in previous scenes, we can still discern his will and his displeasure. Yahweh still works his ways even through our sinful actions. I'm going to say that again. Yahweh still works his way even through our sinful actions. Get this, Jacob becomes the blessed son. And his sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And his fourth son, Judah, will receive the blessing that was given to Jacob. And we're going to discover that Judah is not a very nice man at all. And he's going to learn obedience to Yahweh. But from Judah will come the Lion of Judah, the greatest king in Israel, David. And David starts well. But he doesn't end well. He too blows it, and he does so with another man's wife named Bathsheba. But that couple will have a son named Solomon. And six centuries later, through the same line, will come a man named Joseph, a carpenter, who will adopt a son conceived by the Holy Spirit in his fiancée's womb named Mary. And that will be Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus will live a perfect life, sin-free, someone that we all could admire and look up to. But will his people love him? No. They will hate him, and they will nail him to a cross to die. But he will prove his glorious reign by rising from the dead and forgiving those that rebel against him. And what this proves is that Yahweh still works and he still gets his way despite our sin and our rebellion. That should give us hope right now, folks, that even though you've blown it, God can still redeem it and change it for his glory. Perhaps you even came here this morning to scoff at this sermon and scoff at these people, but you've heard how Jesus saves. You've heard the gospel, and now you feel this tugging at your heart right now that, that maybe this God is real. Maybe there's something here that I need to hear. 
Perhaps you were raised in a dysfunctional family. And you think, well, my life is worthless. Or I've blown it before God. I've messed up so bad the Lord would never want me, much less use me. Well, you can see by the case this morning, that is a lie. God uses the least of us so that he might get the glory. God gets his way regardless of our sin. And he seeks for repentant people that will come to him, so much so that he sent his son Jesus to die for them, to receive the full punishment of their sin in order to be reconciled to him. So friend, if you've blown it, it's not too late. In fact, the mere fact that you have blown it and you recognize it is your call to recognize you can't do anything about it. And you need Jesus. You can come to King Jesus with your heart wide open and crying out, Lord, forgive me. And you know what he'll do? He will. And he'll welcome you with open arms. Turn to this great God, and he will welcome you home into his arms. Let's pray. Lord, we are just stunned by the magnificent things that you do. You are so sovereign, Lord, that you can work in the worst circumstances. And Lord, I know that there are people that are in this congregation right now, people that I know who have been through some tremendously tragic events in their life. Some of them, Lord, have have been in abusive homes and had abusive relationships. Some of them, Lord, have experienced the, the horror of losing a child. Some through miscarriage, some through abortion, some through natural death. Some, Lord, have gone through the difficult circumstances of of recognizing that they have ruined their lives by their own hands. And yet, Lord, you can take all of those things to show us that we need you desperately. We must have you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be drawn to you right now, that we would see you in all of your glory. And if we're ever asked why we are here, why we are before you. It is not because of anything that we have done, but because you are such a great, magnificent, holy, gracious, merciful God who calls us to you. And so, Lord, work in us just as you worked in the life of Jacob. We know, Lord, that the way this scene ends in chapter 27, he doesn't look like a very respectable man, but you're going to use even this in his life to transform him to where you will change his name to Israel, which means struggle with God. He went through the struggle with his God, and he prevailed. And he awaits us on the other side with our king because he has faith in the same God that we are called to have faith in today. So work in us, Lord, to put our faith completely in Jesus and what he has done to reconcile us to you so that we might see your glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.